And just a quick note, Saturday, April 8th at Sweetbreads in Demarest, we're going to have a live show. Going to try to have some fun with this, do some colorful characters that lived in Habersham, some of the history of Demarest and Habersham, a little bit about temperance and the evils of liquor, which, as you know, is a big part of Demarest's history, and some true crime, because you can't have a podcast without true crime. I've been very busy writing some new material. If you've listened to every episode, you're still going to hear about 90% new stuff. Of course, free admission. Hopefully, it'll be warm enough to sit on the back deck. I hope to see you there Saturday, April 8th at 2 o'clock. While we were marching through Georgia, everybody swing your honey, swing your high and low. The Alaman left for the old left hand, around the ring you go. A grand old right to left walk on your heel and toe. Promenade that pretty gal to Georgia. This morning, he was a man with Olympic gold medal hero status. The alert security guard who spotted the deadly backpack and saved lives. Tonight, he's the FBI's prime suspect in the Centennial Park bombing. I'm sure they're investigating everyone that, that was in the area. That may be, but it was 33-year-old Richard Jewell who left his Buford Highway apartment this afternoon, headed to Atlanta FBI headquarters with two federal agents close behind. The writer for Vanity Fair magazine really irritates me. The story begins with a huge photograph of Richard Jewell and his mom there on the couch with a few dogs and throw pillows strewn about. The picture was obviously taken between posed photos, and even the lighting is deliberately unflattering. These are people from Northeast Georgia, after all, who live in a town that, of course, reminds the writer of the movie Deliverance. At one point, they described Piedmont College as a rural mountain Baptist school out in the boondocks and away from the academic mainstream. Of course, everyone from this small southern town is a character right from Andy Griffith or Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I'm sure if he saw the finished article, he never would have let Vanity Fair into his house, but by that point, he had bigger things to deal with. This is Moving Through Georgia, and this week, Richard Jewell gets the business. Richard Jewell started as Richard White, after his father left and his mother remarried, he became Richard Jewell. He worked a few jobs, but always wanted to be involved with law enforcement. He worked as a jailer in Habersham County and also worked part-time as a sort of security guard for his apartment complex. At one point, he broke up a late-night party in the hot tub and ended up arrested for impersonating an officer. That arrest didn't deter him from landing a job as a deputy sheriff, which, according to the Vanity Fair article, turned into a job at the jail after wrecking a patrol car. He didn't like the jail job, so he resigned and instead went to work for security at Piedmont College. I didn't go to undergrad at Piedmont, but I can tell you that a college security guard is not a position to envy. They work all day with kids that just want a party. They're the buzzkills. I remember getting stopped by a security guard while walking into my dorm while we were minding our own business, innocently carrying in one of the decorative trees that line the college's entrance. Now, from our point of view, 
the security guard was a jerk. We were just fun-loving kids who wanted a tree for their dorm room. Apparently, Jewel racked up a few student complaints and he eventually was asked to resign. You can take what I just said and portray it as someone with a compulsive need to be a hero or maybe a control freak or possibly a guy who just wanted to be a cop. The resignation from Piedmont would certainly come back to haunt him. At that point, Richard saw an opportunity. His mom lived in Atlanta and she was about to have some minor surgery. He moved in with her where he could care for her as she recovered and he landed a temporary job working security around the Olympics. He wanted to build his resume. There are police officers and there are people who want to be police officers. Did you ever have safety patrol at your elementary school? I mean, those kids with the orange armbands or sometimes they wore orange belts who told you not to run in the hallway? I can tell you from experience that a successful safety patrol kid is a kid that can stand at their post, talk to people, help out by carrying boxes or holding doors once in a while, and accurately tell the story when they have to report an incident. The kids who are a problem, the kids who get frustrated with their jobs and the kids that lose friends are the ones who actually go out there and try to stop kids from running and who write people up. It's a paradox, but probably the worst thing you can say about a safety patrol kid is that they want to be on safety patrol. Now those kids, are they the ones that become vigilantes, HOA enforcers, the ones that call the cops when your party gets a little loud? Are they the kids who could someday endanger people's lives to be called a hero? Mm, sounds like what happened to Jimmy Wade Pearson. In 1984, a group of Olympic athletes from Turkey had taken a bus to the Los Angeles airport to fly home. Things had gone well during the games, even though the team had been threatened before the Olympics even began by a known terrorist group. When the bus stopped at the airport, a nine-year LA policeman named Jimmy Pearson spotted an unusual object in the wheel well of the bus. He pulled some wires from the device, then grabbed it and threw it onto a runway. He was a hero who had saved the lives of everyone on and near the bus, and he was praised by police chief Darrell Gates. That's when someone noticed that the bomb wasn't really a bomb. Even with the wires he'd pulled out, the bomb would not have exploded. The very next day, Wade was asked to take a lie detector test and he confessed that he'd rigged the whole thing. He had been having trouble at work and figured if he was a hero, he would have his choice of postings to be transferred to. Wade was eventually sentenced to probation and a fine. So now it's 1996 and the Summer Olympics had come to Atlanta. Millions of dollars had been spent to throw a party for the entire world and between sports competitions and parties there were events in Conyers, Jonesboro, Columbus, Lake Lanier and of course Atlanta. Lots of security was needed and up to 30,000 people had been hired to keep an eye on things. One Friday night on the eighth day of the games, Jewel was working the night shift in Centennial Park near a sound and light tower. A crowd was building for a free concert and a few people had been drinking. 
In fact, Jewel noticed a group of inebriated men near his post, but they eventually wandered off. So when he saw a green backpack under a bench, he assumed that it belonged to the partiers. He alerted an Atlanta police officer, who actually turned out to be a GBI officer, who located the group and found it wasn't their bag. Following procedure, the bomb squad was called, but they would take some time to arrive. Jewel and the officer began clearing people out of the area and warning the crew in the tower. Everything by the book, all correct. Then, the bomb went off. Actually, three bombs filled with screws and nails. 111 people were wounded and a woman named Alice Hawthorne, who had come to the concert with her daughter, was killed. A cameraman from Turkey who ran to the scene also died. He had a fatal heart attack. Jewel was immediately acknowledged as a hero whose quick thinking had saved lives, but as you probably know, on July 30th, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution published a front-page story headlined, FBI Suspects Hero Guard May Have Planted Bomb. When things started to turn, Richard Jewell had not yet begun to fight. In fact, he was happy to help the investigation that he felt would clear his name and help find the real bomber. Two FBI investigators arrived at his mother's apartment and asked to question Jewell downtown, but they didn't let on that they were questioning their main suspect. In fact, they asked Jewel to come down and answer questions as part of a training video that would later be used at the FBI Academy. He was more than happy to help his brothers in law enforcement, and he went with them. They asked some questions on video, but since this was supposed to be only a training video, they never read him his rights. When FBI headquarters in Washington heard about what was going on, they urgently called Atlanta and ordered the agents to read Jewel his rights. One of the agents took the call, then asked Jewel to start again at the top after signing a waiver of rights. Jewel got suspicious and refused to talk without a lawyer present. He went home to a media circus. One television network had even rented the apartment across the hall. He was attacked in the press by so-called experts in hero syndrome, previous employers, and some former friends. The president of Piedmont College described him as a badge-wearing zealot who wrote epic police reports for minor infractions. Jewel fit the description put out by FBI profilers, and the news made it look like the noose was tightening around him. And, of course, because he was from North Georgia, the Philadelphia Daily News has his picture captioned, Bubba the Bomber. Jay Leno called him the Unidoofus. Eventually, a little more information came to light. About 20 minutes before the bomb went off, a 911 operator received a call warning, There is a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. The operator wanted to convey the message, but didn't have the address to send the first responders to. She spent some time asking others for the address and eventually reached an office at Centennial Park about nine minutes later. Journalists from the AJC walked the route from the phone that placed the call to Centennial Park and realized that Jewel couldn't have been in two places at once. 
Jewel had pointed out the backpack and the Atlanta officer had called the bomb squad just about a minute before the 911 call came in. Of course, Jewel could have planted the bomb and had a Confederate make the call, but that doesn't fit the lone mad bomber profile that the FBI had been pushing. Despite what was being said in the media, the FBI never really acknowledged Richard Jewell as a suspect, and he was never charged with anything. 33-year-old Richard Jewell has spent most of today sitting on some steps just outside his mother's Buford Highway apartment, while FBI and ATF agents turned it upside down looking for clues. As they removed boxes of material, Jewell's attorney finally admitted his client is a suspect, and still maintains he isn't guilty of anything. Have they found anything inside of your knowledge? No. No, and I don't think they're going to either. And frankly, we welcome this because then this thing is going to be over. More than 100 of the world's news media and even some sightseers recorded every move, especially when bomb-sniffing dogs checked out the apartment complex. Despite their search warrant, despite sources who called Jewel the chief suspect in this case, and despite the fact that they towed away his truck today, the FBI has taken great pains to point out he isn't charged with anything at this point. Investigators swarmed all over his mother's Atlanta apartment and his former residence in Habersham County and found nothing. No bomb-making materials, no gunpowder residue. A friend of mine was working in a Habersham County hardware store at the time and told me about the FBI poring over their inventory of nails and screws, but none were a match to those used in the bomb. After a few days, Richard Jewell was starting to look less and less like a suspect to everyone, including the press. He was in the spotlight for 88 days until the U.S. Attorney General had a letter sent to Jewell's lawyers telling him he was no longer under investigation for the bombing. Jewell and his lawyer began filing defamation suits. Tom Brokaw on NBC had said during a story that the FBI probably have enough evidence to prosecute him, but you always want to have enough to convict him as well. There are still some holes in this case. One of the major holes in the case was that there was no evidence. NBC wouldn't retract Brokaw's statement, but it did pay half a million dollars. CNN the New York Post and Piedmont College settled as well. Jay Leno apologized on air. The only one who didn't was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They took it to court, and a judge determined that the paper's claims were true to the best of their knowledge at the time and even confirmed through multiple sources. The case was dropped. In an editorial, a journalist that worked for CNN in the 90s said that their reporting was right, even though it was based on wrong information from the FBI. He makes a point that it doesn't really matter what they called Richard Jewell, a suspect, a person of interest, public opinion would have read that as, this guy is a suspect. Richard Jewell eventually became a police officer, then a deputy sheriff in Merriweather County. He got married in 1998. In 2006, Governor Sonny Perdue commended Jewell for saving lives at the park, finally saying that he was a hero. He had a lot of health trouble, mostly regarding diabetes, and died of kidney failure in 2007. 
And just to remind you, you're listening to Moving Through Georgia, which is a history podcast mostly focusing on Northeast Georgia. If you have any questions, complaints, or interesting stories, we'd love to hear from you. Georgia at gmail.com. Also, if you wanted to post a review or maybe five stars, it will help get the podcast out to more people. So the question remains, who planted the bomb? Eric Rudolph, a young man who voraciously read about Jewish conspiracies to control the world and a believer that white people were God's chosen people, was the one who actually planted it. His original plan had been to disrupt the games and embarrass the United States by planting five bombs over five nights, but luckily he chose to stop. Maybe after killing someone with his first bomb, he decided that was enough. He was later accused of bombing a gay nightclub and two women's clinics that provided abortions. Later investigation came up with witnesses who saw a man looking like Rudolph in Centennial Park with the green backpack, and someone saw him looking suspicious and took down his car tag number. Rudolph also developed the MO of calling 911 just about half an hour before the bombs detonated to warn the police. As he made the 10 most wanted list, he disappeared into the wilderness of North Carolina to live off the land for five years, avoiding the FBI's best efforts to find him. A police officer arrested a man going through a dumpster behind a gas station one night, and that man was identified as Eric Rudolph. His bombs had killed a police officer and a young mother, besides wounding hundreds. He is currently at the Florence, Colorado Supermax Prison, where he will live out the rest of his life in an 8x10 concrete cell. That's all.